Well, our Father, we are grateful tonight for your grace, and we are grateful for your forgiveness. We are mindful that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. We, we are aware of our own shortcomings and our own sin. We are aware of our uh, failure to hit the mark. We continually fall short. And when that happens, the enemy will come and accuse us. He will even tell us that we have not been adopted into your family. He will cause us to uh, doubt that we really belong to you when indeed we have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. But we thank you that the work that Jesus did on the cross was a sufficient work, and it was a deep work. Uh, we, we thank you, Father, that in spite of the fact that we are in your family, and in spite of the fact that we have trusted in Christ alone and you've given us eternal life, we still have this propensity to sin. And we continually fall short, and we disappoint you, and we disappoint ourselves. But we are grateful that Jesus is our advocate, and we are grateful that Jesus is our defense attorney, and that when the enemy accuses us and tells us in our hearts that we can never be forgiven again, we, we can't go to you for forgiveness again that Jesus stands up and is our defense attorney. And, and that by his own blood, he has died and he has forgiven us forever. Uh, you have not dealt with us according to our sin. You have not rewarded us according to our iniquities. If you did, we'd have nothing. But you have been so gracious, you've been so kind, you've been so long-suffering. We, we, can, uh, we can never exhaust your forgiveness. That is really astonishing. Uh, your love just keeps flowing like Niagara. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. You not only forgive our sin, you forget our sin. We cannot fathom how that takes place, but you declare it. Your sins and lawless deeds, you say, I will remember no more. So we don't have to remember every single thing we've ever done. We don't have to clean up our act to come to you so that you accept us and forgive us. We just come to you as we are, and we say that we're sinners, and we say that we're dirty, and we say that we're self-centered, and we say that we honestly don't care about anybody else except ourselves in our heart of hearts. And you know that to be true. And then because of what Jesus did, because he died once for all on that cross, we can receive your mercy and forgiveness. Now that's the gospel. It's the greatest news in all the world. It sets us free. And we'll never be perfect, not on this earth. We're your children, and just as we have mercy on our children and understand their flaws and their shortcomings and that they don't get it all, so you treat us in much the same way, only in a better way. So we're mindful tonight of grace. We're mi mindful tonight of forgiveness and mercy. And the fact that uh, we'll never measure up, but Jesus did measure up, and we're with him. And he covers us. And he made a way for us, and he made the payment for us. May we never forget that truth. May we celebrate it, may we glory in it, 
And we do that tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, turn with me to the book of Boaz. Which, I, I enjoy saying, does not exist. But the book of Ruth does, so we'll go back to the book of Ruth. Uh, we're in chapter 2 of the book of uh, Ruth. A quick summary, if you've been with us in our study, you know this. And if you haven't, just a quick summary. In chapter 1, you've got... Uh, You've got Ruth, but Ruth, the story doesn't begin with her. It begins with a guy named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons who are uh, of, the, of the city of Bethlehem, very famous city in Israel. But when there was a famine in the land, they head to Moab, which are, are the, the Moabites were the enemies of, of the Jews, but because of the famine, Elimelech, thinks he can do better over in the land of Moab, a land that is against God, has foreign gods, and he takes his family there because he thinks he can escape the financial difficulty. Uh, he was going to be there a short time. It turned into a long period of time. He didn't plan on dying when he went there, but he did. His two sons died. While they were there, they had married two Moabite women. Uh, and so suddenly you have three women that are in really bad shape. They're without their husbands, they're without income, they're without a form of support, and women did not have the opportunities back then that they have today. So these women were up a creek and in bad condition. Uh, it's Naomi and her two uh, daughter-in-laws. One of the daughters stays in Moab, but Ruth decides to come with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And she says, where you go, I will go. And she says, your God will be my God, which as we saw last week was pretty significant because uh, Chemosh, who was the God of the Moabites, was a, was a wicked, wicked God. There, there was, uh, you would sacrifice young boys uh, to this God, uh, Chemosh, in the fire. Uh, they would take young girls and they would put them in the temple where they would be abused sexually. Uh, th these were wicked, godless, immoral religions. And that's where she came from. So she now comes back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. Ruth comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And that's really what chapter 1 is all about. They are, they are in bad shape. Quite frankly, they're in utter despair. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a season of your life where you would write over it, utter despair. But that's where they are in the first chapter. Then you get to chapter 2, and everything changes. Now, we've been going through chapter 2, and we've been kind of going through it slowly. Why have we been going through it slowly? Because you can read it very quickly. I mean, you can read that in two minutes. Well, we've been going through it slowly because there's all these little nuggets in there. And you don't want to miss the nuggets. I mean, there, there, there's, there's, some, there's some gold in this chapter. To get the setting of chapter 2, I would like you to go with me to Psalm 57. Now, why are we going to Psalm 57? We're going to Psalm 57 because there are some similarities to Psalm 57 and to the situation of Ruth and Naomi 
as we read the events of chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. In Psalm 57, it's written by David. And if you look at the little inscription, before you actually get to verse 1, you'll see that Psalm 57 was written by David, but it was written in the context of, uh, of a very, very bad situation in his life. It, it, it mentions there that he wrote this psalm when he fled from Saul in the cave. Um, David uh, was the second king of Israel. But when he wrote this psalm, he was not yet king. He was going to be king. The first king of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. Uh, Saul was uh, a guy who, if he walked into a room, he impressed everybody. If uh, Saul, if he were around today, would be just a wonderful candidate politically. Because he, he had all the, well, he'd just be perfect. Came out of central casting. He was the biggest guy in Israel, tallest guy. Had those chiseled good looks. You know, some guys just look like they know what they're doing. Some guys just look like leaders. Some guys walk into a room and they have, a, they have an ethos. They have a, a gravitas. They, have a, they just look like they know what they're doing. Now, they don't always... But sometimes a guy looks like it. Uh, Saul would be one of those guys who would come across strong on TV. If he was debating Nixon, he would win. If you're old enough to remember what I'm talking about. First televised debates, Kennedy and Nixon. And Kennedy just looked good on TV. Uh, Nixon didn't look good on TV. And that's when people begin to pick up, gosh, you know, you need somebody that looks good on TV. It's important. Saul looked good on TV. He looked like a leader. Tallest guy, biggest guy in Israel. Uh, he had a pretty good start, but he quickly faded because he didn't have a heart for God and he didn't have a heart for leadership. Uh, he didn't have the character that was necessary for godly leadership. It got so bad after a series and series of events that when he should have been waiting on, the, on, on, on Samuel to come and make the offering, he got impatient and he went ahead and made it himself and God said, that's it. And God said, we're going to get another guy. So the, the covenant that God would have made with Saul, that his son, was, his son was, would be on the throne forever, uh, God switched that, and they, he was told, Samuel was then told, because of the continued disobedience of Saul, he was told to go to the house of Jesse. Jesse was told to bring all of his sons. Uh, Samuel looked over all the boys, and something was wrong. He said, do you have any other boys? And he goes, oh, yeah, well, there's David out in the field. Go get him. He brought David, Spirit of God made it clear that David was the anointed one, and he anoints David to be the next king of Israel. Now, David would not immediately take the throne. It was going to be years and years and years. Now, when the Spirit of God departed from Saul, are you guys still with me? When the Spirit, I'm setting up the context of Psalm 57, so you can see the parallel between this and Ruth chapter 2. So what happens is, is that the Spirit of God departs from Saul. Now, the only thing that will calm Saul down, because he has these severe mood swings, and he has these issues of rage, and the only thing that will calm him down is music, is heart music. And someone had given him one of David's CDs, apparently. And it really helped him. So what, what he did was he actually hired David. Now, David was taking care of his dad's sheep in Bethlehem, which is about five, six miles to the south. So David had two part-time jobs. He would take care of his dad's sheep, and then he would go up and he would do a gig for Saul and he would soothe Saul and help Saul. Did Saul know he had been anointed to be the next king? No. 
He did. And then the Goliath thing happened. You know about the Goliath thing. And here's this great giant of the Philistines intimidating. Uh, David's dad sent him up with some food to his, for his brothers that were in the army. And David gets up there and he sees this giant Philistine taunting the armies of the living God. And David says, well, hey, what's going on here? Why is this guy taunting this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, who was the biggest guy in Israel? Saul. Who should have taken on Goliath? Saul. But see, Saul didn't have the heart. He didn't have the character. He had the looks, but he didn't have the stuff. He had the profile, but he didn't have the stuff. He had the resume, but he didn't have the heart. It's always internal. It's always the gut. By the way, Saul was a big guy. David was not a big guy. Saul was double XL, maybe triple XL. Saul, uh, David was medium. How do we know that? Because he tried to put on Saul's armor and he was swimming in it. See, it's, it, it's not physical size, it's the heart, it's the size of the character, it's the size of the heart. And later of David, it was said of David, he was a man after God's own heart. It's always the heart. Okay? So, you know what happens. David, by help of the Spirit of God, takes down Saul, cuts off the sucker's head, and suddenly there's a new number one song in Israel, and the new number one song is, you know the words, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. They didn't sit well with Saul. Because you see, Saul is what we call a synthetic leader. David was an authentic leader. Synthetic leaders look like leaders, but they don't have the character, they don't have the heart. Synthetic leader will take a poll to figure out his position. Authentic leaders don't do that. Now, when you get a synthetic leader, and suddenly you've got an authentic leader that comes on the scene, here's what happens. The synthetic leader, when, when an authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader gets threatened. And the synthetic leader then has to destroy the authentic leader. And now what happens is that David is on the run. He's got to run from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him. Why? Because he is a threat to David, uh, to Saul, because he is an authentic leader. And so he's got to destroy the threat. So what happens to David? For how many years, we're not sure, but for years and years and years, he's on the run from Saul, and Saul is devoting all of his energies to tracking down, hunting down David, and killing David. So when you read the inscription in Psalm 57, it says it's a mictum of David, or a, a musical psalm of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. The context is, David's on the run. He's not king yet. He's on the run from the first king who hates his guts because he, he's an authentic leader. He's hiding out in the caves. He's in that Judean wilderness. He's in that Judean hill country. He's, he's somewhere around in Gedi, where you go up those, uh, to those springs in Gedi, up those waterfalls, and it pours out. It goes down to the Dead Sea. But it, 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 you have these steep canyon walls, and as you walk up there, which you can do today, you see these different caves. You see caves. You see holes. They're everywhere up there. It's not all that big of an area. And what happened was, is that David was taking refuge, but Saul had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers combing every square foot of those canyons trying to track down David. And where is David? He's burrowed into some cave, hoping he will stay alive that day. That's the context of his writing this psalm. 
And this went on and on and on and on. And when something like that goes on and on and on, what happens is you find yourself at some point getting on the verge of despair because you think it will never change. Now watch what David says with that introduction and that background. You know how preachers say, I want to give you a little background? I gave you a little background. According to that clock, I gave you 18 minutes of background. <laughs> I gave you 18 minutes and 30 seconds of background. Watch what he says. He's in the cave. The soldiers are everywhere. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. What does he need? He needs grace. We need grace every moment of our lives. Watch this. For my soul takes refuge in thee. My body is, is taking refuge in this hole. But my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. I, I need you to cover me like a mother eagle covers her eaglets. I need you to protect me until, until destruction passes by. Maybe he could hear the footsteps of those soldiers as he's burrowed in underneath the ground. Watch this. Now watch. Watch the hope. Watch the hope. And watch the perspective. As, as he is in a situation that could drive a man to utter despair, watch this. I will cry to God Most High. He doesn't say, I will pray. He says, I will cry. He's, he's using a term that speaks of desperation. He's using a term, when you're in a very, very difficult and tight circumstance and the pressure is about to crush your chest, you cry out to God. That's what he's saying here. This is not a calm prayer. This is not a, uh, Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies kind of prayer. You know some prayers you just kind of throw off? I mean, we shouldn't do it, but we do. You just kind of kick into prayer mode. That's not one of these. This is a prayer from the gut, from the heart. Watch this. I will cry to God most high. Watch this. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Uh, promises have been made to David about his future, but he wasn't sure if he'd last another 30 minutes. What was going to keep him from being discovered by one of those soldiers and the guy loping his head off with his sword? I mean, he, he was in desperate, desperate straits. But you see, God had made a promise to him that he would, be on the, he would be on the throne. Well, he wasn't on the throne yet. So what does he say? He says, I will cry to God most high. Saul is high. Saul is the king. Saul has power. Saul has troops. Uh, Saul has influence. Saul's got all the cards. He's playing all the cards. David's got nothing. He's got no influence. He doesn't know the right people. He's got no resources. He's got nothing except God. I will cry to God most high. Saul is high, but God is most high. I will cry to God most high. Now watch this. To God who accomplishes all things 
for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. Now, how can David say that? He knows who God is. He knows the promises of God. He knows the sovereignty of God. And he knows the, he knows the providence of God. We talk a lot in here about the providence of God. We talk a lot in here about the sovereignty of God. You know why we talk a lot about that? Because it's on every page of the Bible. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, that God's in absolute control. And we talk about the providence of God. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is, um, is, is basically the provision of God, that God will give you what you need when you need it, And see, the reference there is to the providence of God, to God who accomplishes all things for me, to the God who provides all things for me. God will give me what I need when I need it. Uh, If you look back over your life, that's been the story of your life. Have you ever been in a tight place? Have you ever been in a hard place? Have you ever been in a difficult place? Have you been, ever been in a place where the pressure was sustained and long and difficult and you were feeling that crushing of your life and you didn't know how you're going to get out? Is there a time you can look back on? How did you get out? How did you escape? God accomplished it for you. David's in this cave, bro, then, and he says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. That is a confidence in the sovereignty of God. It is a confidence in the providence of God. That you are not by yourself. You are not without resources because you belong to him. That is his, um, you you know, uh, some people have hope, but it's hope without substance. Hope in the Bible is, is, is concrete hope. It's got rebar in it. It's got concrete. It's just not some cotton candy. Well, gosh, I hope that's true. Uh Uh-uh. God's there. God's sovereign. He is the providential God. He is the God who accomplishes all things. He has delivered me. He will deliver me. He is most high. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He will accomplish it. Even if right now I'm in the worst place I've ever been in my entire life. This is a fundamental verse. It's a fundamental verse. If at times you're getting crushed, if at times you're hemmed in, if at times you don't see any way of escape, here's a fundamental verse. I will cry to God most high. It's a phenomenal statement. To God who accomplishes all things for me. All things. Not some things. All things. Without this verse, I would submit to you, David would be in utter despair. Which is where Ruth and Naomi are in the book of Ruth, which we're calling the book of Boaz, so let's turn over there. So go to your left. Now we've been hanging out here for quite a while. And as we've said before, they're in utter despair in chapter 1, because they're without any means of support. It's hard to paint, once again, how, how terrible a situation these women were in. 
how desperate their plight was, how desperate their need was. But here's what happens. In chapter 2, uh, we, we, well, we find out at the end of chapter 1, it's the beginning of barley season. What does that mean? It means they're going to have the opportunity to get some food. And as we have seen, uh, Ruth goes to the field. You can read this in the opening verses. She goes into the field because there was a law in Israel, undoubtedly that Naomi made her aware of, that um, they didn't harvest the entire field. They left the edges so that the widow, the alien, the orphan could go and harvest that themselves and keep them alive. It was, it was how they made provision for the people that were in need. So she says to, Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go into a field. She says, great. And as we talked about the last week or two, they had these vast, vast fields. They weren't fenced off. They were given the tribes and individual families within the tribes had the land. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. And to someone who was a foreigner, she didn't understand how they did the bordering because there weren't any fences. They just had stones, a small pile of stones at each corner of a particular section. And what happens is, as you read the scripture, she's going out to the field and by chance she finds herself in the field of this guy by the name of Boaz. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't the luck of the draw. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. When you're not sure what to do, God is. You may be confused, you may be in the fog, but he isn't. It's always clear to him. Always. It's not always clear to us, but his hand is always upon us. In, 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 in your moment, in my moment of deepest confusion, his hand is all over me. And he will direct my steps. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So here she is. She finds herself on a section of these hundreds and hundreds of acres on the plot that belongs to this guy named Boaz. It wasn't by chance. It was by providence. Because God is about to accomplish all things for her. All she knows, she's hungry and she's trying to survive. Now, she meets Boaz. We looked at this last week. Uh, she's gleaning. She's out there, you know, hustling to get the barley grain. Boaz shows up and says to his guys, hey, who's that, who's that gal? And they say, oh, that's Ruth, you know, Naomi's daughter. And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he has a conversation with her in verse 8. Doesn't know this conversation is going to change his whole life. Doesn't know it. He's just having a conversation with her. He's gracious to her. He's kind to her. Uh, he basically tells her, hey, don't go in the other fields. You stay in my field. Um, didn't have to do that, but he offered it. He also said, you work with my maidens. Because the guys would reap, the maidens would go behind with the twine. They would take the, the barley stalks and they would tie them up and put them in the sheaves. You stay with my gals. Uh, you drink out of the water well that they drink out of. He, he was really kind and gracious to her, but he's not done. We stopped last week at verse 13. And she's overwhelmed because she says in 13, she says, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Well, it's not done yet. This is all the same day. It's all happening on the same day. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, uh, come here that you may eat of the bread and, deep your, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. 
Here's a great pickup line for you. Come, dip your bread in the vinegar with me. Works every time, guys. That didn't mean a lot. It didn't mean a lot to us, but it meant a lot to her. He's basically, hey, you know, come on in and, and sit down and help yourself. Have some dinner. Have some barbecue. Have some beans, coleslaw, the whole thing. He was very, very hospitable to this gal. Wasn't required. Wasn't necessary. He was just being extremely gracious. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. They would take these barley stalks. They'd put them in an iron pan. They'd have a blazing fire, and they'd stick them in, and the fire would burn up the chaff, and it was sort of like roasting, you know, I don't know, popping popcorn or something. It was a delicacy. It was a, you know, something they enjoyed. It was a good deal. So that's what they're eating. Um, she was satisfied. She had some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, obviously a midday meal here, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, now watch this. Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Uh, he's, he's really going the extra mile here. Let her glean among the sheaves. In other words, you guys aren't even done. You're, you haven't even reaped this area. You let her go ahead and take some of that. Oh, and by the way, um, verse 16, also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Hey, hey, listen, here's, here's a, not only let her reap where you guys haven't even pulled it all down yet, but I want you to go ahead and reap, and I want you to leave some specifically for her and nobody else. So you see the grace, you see the mercy, you see the loving kindness. And, and she went out that day just hoping, just hoping she could get enough to live and to not die and to feed uh, her mother-in-law as well as herself. She's hoping maybe for a cup Maybe two cups of barley. Verse 17. So she gleaned until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. So they'd have the, the stalks, the barley, and then you got to beat it out, get the grain, separate it from the chaff. It's a long process, okay? And, and then it says this. She beat out what she had gleaned and was about an ephah of barley. Um, Three-fifths three of a bushel. Yeah, roughly about 30 pounds. So at the end of one day, she had 30, she had at least 30 pounds of barley. 30 pounds. Not a cup, not a cup and a half, not two cups. She had 30 pounds. Do you see the grace? Do you see the mercy? Do you see the abundance? Do you see the kindness? This is unbelievable. Are you guys still with me? Okay, watch this. Verse 18. So she took it up, went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today and where did you work? Now, see, we could just pass over that, but here's what I want to submit to you. She goes out that day, maybe hoping for a cup, two cups of barley. She comes back, and she's got 30 pounds of barley. And Naomi says, where, 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 where did you, did you go to Costco? Where did you go? <laughs> I have gone to Costco before for two or three items. 
I have never left Costco with two or three items because they have such deals at Costco. Uh, I'll buy 48 pounds of Chilean sea bass for $3.99. I don't have enough freezer space, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, Naomi's kind of shocked when she comes back, expecting a cup or two of barley. She comes back with at least 30 pounds of barley. So with that context of understanding, when you read the words where Naomi says, where did you glean today? And my gosh, and where did you work that you would get 30 pounds of barley? And then she says, may he who took notice of you be blessed. She didn't know who had taken notice. She just knew she went out in some guy's field and somebody was obviously gracious to this young gal. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And I'm telling you, when she told her that, Naomi had to have gone, huh, because that was significant. Why was that significant? We'll go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. Her husband was Elimelech. This, this kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, Elimelech, her husband, had died in, earlier in chapter 1. But, but Boaz was a relative of her deceased husband. Now, that's key. You'll see it in just a second. Uh, in 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living, watch this, and to the dead. Why does she say into the dead? Because he was related to her deceased husband. And see, there's this whole concept, and there's this whole cultural concept that was going on in Israel that's somewhat foreign to us. But I'm telling you, when she understood that, they, that, that Ruth had found herself in the field of Boaz, and Boaz was the guy that had given her 30 pounds of barley, some things started adding up in Naomi's mind. Why? Because she makes the statement here. She says, Naomi says in verse 20, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. That's key. It's significant. In the scripture, it's called the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Larry Richards writes this about the kinsman redeemer. He says, the concept of the kinsman redeemer is primarily one in which a relative chooses to rescue a family member in trouble. Four examples of this in Scripture. Number one, if an Israelite became so poor that he had to sell his land to make ends meet, a kinsman redeemer might buy back the property and restore it to its rightful owner. That's Leviticus 25, 25. Number two, if an Israelite got so far in debt that he had to sell himself as a slave, a kinsman redeemer might pay his purchase price and offer him his freedom. That could be a life-changing event, couldn't it? Everybody has stuff happen. That's Leviticus 25, verses 47 to 55. One of the roles of the kinsman redeemer. You see the connection of family here? Number three, 
If an Israelite was murdered in cold blood, a kinsman redeemer might avenge his death by killing the one who had conspired against him. That's Numbers 35, verses 12 through 27. You say, that's kind of violent. Well, they didn't have a police force. They didn't have an FBI. Somebody had to do justice. And if a family member was killed in cold blood, the kinsman redeemer would exact the justice that God required. Now, if it was manslaughter, he couldn't do it. But sometimes people just got angry because a relative was killed that might have just been manslaughter. That's why they had cities of refuge in Israel. If it was manslaughter, you could run to one of the cities of refuge and the family member could not go in and kill you, even though he was angry because it was unjust. Okay. Number four, if an Israelite died without producing any heirs, you say, well, that's no big deal. It was to them. We looked at this last week. The importance of having a wife, the importance of having children, Psalm 127 and 128. If an Israelite died without producing any heirs, a kinsman redeemer might preserve the deceased man's name by marrying his widow. She would thus become pregnant and have children. It's called the Leverite Law. That's uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. That's the concept of kinsman redeemer. So, you see, that's a little bit foreign to us. It wasn't foreign to Naomi. So here she is, destitute. Here she is in dire straits, has come back to Bethlehem with this daughter-in-law, just hoping to survive, hoping for a cup or two of barley. Here comes the first day, Ruth back in. Ruth comes back in, not with a cup or two. She comes in with 30 pounds of barley, and she says, where did you get this? And she says, I was in the field of a guy by the name of Boaz. And suddenly, Naomi can see it all. Suddenly, she begins to see the goodness of God. And instead of being in utter despair, she begins to have concrete hope. Because she knows that meeting, that she would find herself in that field which belonged to Boaz. It was not an accident. It was not chance. It was the hand of Almighty God. Now, how did this happen? And, and, and how is it? We, we know the rest of the story of Ruth. We know all the implications of their meeting in the field. Now, now, hey, by the way, they just met in the field. Did they know it was going to take place? Did they know what was going to happen? We talked last week about uh, Boaz being a single man, probably somewhere around 40, past the years of getting married, probably still had a desire to be married and have children, but to him it looked like a lost cause and a lost dream. I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. That's the providence of God. Uh, we talked about the fact last week that God, as, as we make transitions in life from one chapter to the next, we try to accumulate assets that will enable us to make the transition with a minimum of difficulty. We try to prepare for the transitions. Oftentimes, it seems in the life of a godly man, God will strip him of the assets that he needs to make a transition with a minimum of discomfort. Why does God strip, of a, strip, of a, strip us of assets that others have? It's very simple. He wants us to trust in him alone. Because you see, he's the God who accomplishes all things for me. 
There are guys in here, there are guys sitting around you that have remarkable stories. Because I get emails from some of them. I, I mean, I'm looking at several guys, I'm not looking at them, but they're in here. And I just know enough about their stories to know they're living this right now. They're living it. They wouldn't choose to live it. Uh, they look around and see other guys who are at their stage of life who have stuff that you would expect to be normal at that stage of life, but these guys don't have it. Why? God has taken it away from them. And what are they doing? I'll tell you what, they're walking by sheer absolute faith and not by sight. And they don't have a clue how they're going to make it. But they're making it. Oh, and here's the other thing. They will continue to make it. Yeah, but the economy might get worse. So, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Let it get worse. Let it get worse. Is that a problem for God? Oh, and those of us who have accumulated, not us, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. Those of you who have accumulated wonderful reserves, God bless you, I'm all for you. I think that's great. God's giving you reserve, great. You know the problem with reserve? You ever save for a rainy day? Sometimes it rains. Have you ever had to tap your reserves? When you tap your reserves, I'm just curious. Is your attitude, thank you, Lord, that you provided this reserve in the past and that I have it now to go ahead and tap and use? Is that usually your response? When I've had to tap a reserve and I've had a reserve, that's not my response. My response is, Dad gummit. <laughs> I hate tapping reserves. Why? Because I like my reserves and I want to keep them in reserve. You see, when you got reserves, nothing wrong with reserve. It's a gift from God as long as you understand it's a gift from God, but you ever have to tap it, tap it with the right attitude. Thank God he was gracious enough to give me this before I needed it. Oh, and then you begin to think, well, what happens if I have to tap it again? And what happens? And then what happens if I have to tap out? He's still God. And he's the God who accomplishes all things for me, even when you're tapped out. Um, let me give you three truths about the providence of God. I don't know where you are. I take this out of this story uh, with Ruth and the abundance that, you know, and really, we've broken this up now over several weeks. The danger about chapter two is that you, you forget that it all happened in one day. In one day. Okay? Don't forget that. Um, let me be the first truth I got here about providence. The providence of God can come absolutely out of nowhere and save you. I'll say it again. The providence of God can come absolutely out of nowhere and save you. Or to put it another way, you never saw it coming. I want to submit to you on this day in Ruth chapter 2 with Ruth and Boaz, they never saw it coming. They both had their issues, as we talked about last week. They were both coming from different contexts. It was a normal day like any other day. 
they'd, they'd been in difficulty. Ruth, for sure, had been in difficulty for quite a while. Did she know that day would be a day when the providence of God would come shooting out of nowhere and change her whole life and the future of her life and future generations forever? Guys, the stuff you're dealing with now and the stuff I'm dealing with now, it's just not us and it's just not right now. It affects generations. God works through generations. Everything's connected. Everything's tied together. It's just how God works. It's called history. He's got a plan. He's working his plan. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is by accident. He's written the beginning from the end. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's Lord over it all. He has planned it. He has purposed it. He has spoken it. It will come into existence. And nothing can thwart his hand. That's our God. Oh, and that plan includes you and your life and your existence and what you're dealing with right now. First truth, the providence of God can come out of nowhere and save you. Um, number two, the providence of God can suddenly tie together a series of defeats. Let me say that again. The providence of God can suddenly tie together a series of defeats. That's what happened in chapter 2. There's been defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat in Ruth's life and in Naomi's life. And suddenly, in one day, the providence of God is going to show up and it's going to tie everything together, not only for their present, not only for their future, but for generations and for the coming of Christ, which affected you and me. Number three. The providence of God can look too good to be true. <coughs> can I say that again? The providence of God can look too good to be true. Um, now, I want to relate some stuff to you out of my own life. Um, John Flavel the great pastor of Dartmouth, England, who wrote that book, The Mystery of Providence, 300 years ago. Flavel said this, and I've quoted this before. And before I give you the quote, I've got to make a statement. Some of you have heard me, you've heard me say this before. But English, we read our, our English Bibles. English reads left to right. You've picked up on that, haven't you? <laughs> That's important. English reads left to right. Hebrew, however, Hebrew language reads right to left. So you get a Hebrew Bible, Genesis is not in the front, Genesis is in the back. Hebrew to us reads backwards. John Flavel said, in the late 1600s, John Flavel said, some providences of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. What that means is, you'll have an event occur in your life where the bottom drops out of your life. Uh, you get blindsided, something happens to you you never saw coming. Maybe it's a series of events. The psalmist says, all your waves have rolled over me. It's one wave and then you get up and another wave knocks you over and then another wave. You're just, I mean, you're just, you're knocked down, you're beat up. 
It's, it's one defeat after another. And you're at the lowest place you've ever been in your life, and you wonder, where's God? And, and it's a legitimate question. <coughs> However, you give yourself five years, you give yourself 10 years, you give yourself 15 years. And then you turn and you look backwards on that event, on that chapter of your life, five, 10 years, 15 years down the road, and you'll see the hand of God all over you. When you, when you were in the middle of it, you couldn't see the hand of God. You give it five, ten years, and you look backwards, and you see the providence of God. You'll see the goodness of God. That even the defeats, even the, when we're blindsided, even when we're crushed, even when our plans and dreams, and we think we're finished and we're done, the hand of God's all over you. You see that in Joseph. You see it in Moses. Uh, you see it here. Uh, I see it when I read biographies of people that God has used over the centuries. Uh, they all had it in common. It's, how, it's the normal way that God works in the life of a man who's following him. There's going to be a season in your life that makes no sense. There's going to be a season in your life where you're actually crushed and overwhelmed. Paul said, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were excessively burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. You know what that means? Paul didn't want to keep on living. Because he was excessively burdened beyond his strength. How many times have you heard the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? God gave you more than he could handle. Because he was excessively burdened. That's in 2 Corinthians 1 or 2. He says, I was excessively burdened beyond my strength. God will burden you beyond your strength. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you strength that you've never had before. Paul wanted to die. There are times in your life when you wish that you could die, and if you're not careful, you will be right on the verge of uh, excessive despair, extreme despair, utter despair. I remember the day I, I wished that I could die. I was 33 years old. I had been a rookie pastor uh, in a church on the San Francisco Peninsula, and uh, it was my first church we'd had I've been there three years, but, um, and there'd been some growth, but I, um, um, I, I didn't do well personally there because, and I've said this before, the gifting that's required to pastor a church, I honestly don't have. I, I mean, I don't have it. I could prove it to you. You could talk with people in churches that I pastored, and they would say amen to that. I just don't have it, because you've got to do more than teach the Bible. Um, a friend of mine, Gary Rosberg, was telling me last week that he said, think of a target. Think of a target, you know, like you're out with a bow and arrow. Think of a target. You've got the bullseye, and that's the core, and then you got a circle around that, then there's a circle around that, and a circle around that. And Gary said, in everybody's life, there are the things which you are not good at. That's the outer circle. You know the things you're not good at? Then, but don't just stay there. The next circle inside are the things that you're good at. There's some things you're good at. Then inside that circle are the things that you are excellent at. And then inside that circle, there are the things that you are, uh, 
and I'm blanking, I gotta look at my notes. Uh, there are the things to which you are unique at. Unique, very, very unique. Now here's what happens. Sometimes we're in situations and what is called for is for us to perform in areas that we're not good at. We're, we're, we're bad. When I had to pastor a church, I loved studying and I loved teaching, but there was a bunch of other things I had to do and I wasn't good at it. And it was highly stressful for me. Long story short, I had a young church that was growing, but I got so burned out, I got so worn out, I got so stressed out, and I didn't know how to pick staff. I didn't know how to find good people to help me. That every time I'd, I'd, I would hire somebody, I would spend more time with them trying to help them than then helping with the church. And it happened once, twice, three, four, five times. It just wore me out. <clears throat> and I left. I finally resigned after three years because I felt guilty for taking their money for being paid because I didn't feel I was doing a good job. I probably shouldn't have done that, but I was immature and I was unwise and I did it. And I figured I would immediately have another invitation to go speak somewhere. And that's exactly what didn't happen. I figured I'd immediately have another invitation to go pastor somewhere. And it didn't happen for almost a year. And it was a real hard time. It was a real hard time. And uh, I had interviewed at churches, and every one of them turned me down. Seven churches in a row were not impressed with me. Uh, they talked to people in my previous church, I guess. But there was a little church that kept calling me that whole year. I had to go get a job driving a truck the same job I had in college. I had to go get a job driving a truck and just putting food on the table. But this little tiny church kept calling me. I didn't want to go there. And I've told the story before, but I'm telling you again for a reason. Uh, the first church I had was young people. It was growing. It was exciting. This church was full of old people, people about my age now. It's supposed to be a joke. You didn't laugh. <laughs> But I was around 30, all these people, the young people in that church were 60. Most of them were 70, a lot of them were 80. And when you're 30, you don't want to be pastoring a church with a bunch of people who are 80. No offense, but you don't. And they kept calling me, and they kept calling me. I said, I'd never go there. I'd never go there. I'd never go there. Guess where I went? After a year, I went there. Did I want to be there? No. It was very depressing for me because I knew I could never make that little church grow, and I never did. That was hard for me. Before I went there, I had one church that invited me to come, and uh, everything we'd lost financially, they offered, there were a bunch of wealthy guys, and they offered, they offered me the moon. And I was going down there to tell them I was going to take it, and I got in the meeting, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. And I went back to this little place I didn't want to go. Um, and it was really hard. And I was in a deep depression. It took me three years to pull out of. Now, remember my three principles? The first principle is this. The providence of God can come out of nowhere and save you. See, to me, that was the greatest defeat of my life. Let me tell you something that happened. I was there just a couple months, and there wasn't much to do except preach. I had no counseling. There, there, there were hardly any people in the church, and they were old. I didn't do any counseling, because you've been in a bad marriage for 60 years. You're not coming in for counseling. <laughs> and Mary said to me one day, she said, you know, Steve, what you ought to do? You ought to work on your doctorate at Dallas Seminary. You know how that thing, you fly down there and do the courses on the off months? 
I said, well, I, I couldn't. She said, well, you know what? You need something to do. I said, yeah, but I, 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 I couldn't do that. She said, you don't have anything else to do here. And you, can, you get your sermon ready and you're done. She said, I think those, she said, I think those guys on the board would be happy. And then doctor, and they were on the Dallas Seminary circuit. And we always had professors coming up from Dallas Seminary. And I talked to uh, one of them, and he goes, oh, hey, you had it in this doctoral part. It'd be great. We'd love to have you. He said, have you talked to the board guys? I said, no, I haven't talked to them. She said, you ought to talk to them. And I talked to them, and they said, oh, that's great, Steve. You ought to do You really want to do that? And they go, yeah, we'll pay for it. I said, you'll pay for it? Yeah. You know, I look back on that, and do you know that God used that to change my whole life? Here were some very gracious, godly men that thought that would be a great opportunity for me. They actually paid my tuition so that I could do all that doctoral work. And then I did all my research on men because those guys made a way for me. And I was depressed the whole time I was there. Does God work strangely or what? And I remember there were some real difficult and hard courses. If I was in a normal church, I never could have, I couldn't have done it. The work was too hard. I remember one class, I had to write 22 papers for one class. It was brutal. It was tough. But then there was, a, there was a, a section of courses that were just brutal. And then when I thought to myself, well, that's been great for me to be in because I've had a challenge. And the guys on the board would say, hey, how's that class going? They were excited. They were excited. Very unusual situation. And I thought, what's going to happen when I finish those real hard courses? Because then I'm not going to have anything to do again. And one day I got real depressed about that. I went over and had lunch with my dad. And I said, you know, Dad? I, I said, I'm kind of I'm, I'm fighting off depression. He goes, why? I said, because when I finish this coursework in six months, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. He said, well, you know what? God knows what you're going to do. And as soon as you're done with that, he's going to show up the next thing. He said, so you don't have to be depressed today. My dad was a real touchy-feely counselor. <laughs> And you know what? He was right. Because when I finished that last assignment, the next day, I'm walking out of the office at 4.30 in the afternoon. It's just me and a secretary. I'm walking out that back office. You guys mind if I tell you this story? I'm walking out the back office. I'm in this little tiny church, maybe 85, 90 people on a Sunday. It's not growing. It's, just, it's in the San Francisco Bay Area. They don't go to church. You go to church, they'll arrest you. It's a joke. It's not the Bible Belt. And I'm thinking, I just finished, and I thought, what am I going to do now? I'm walking out the back door. I said, okay, Joan, I'll see you. I hear the phone ring, and she says, I think I can catch him. And she goes, hey, Steve. And I go, yeah, there's a guy on the phone named Dennis Rainey. I go, Dennis Rainey? Why do I know that name? Dennis Rainey. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, Dennis. She said he's from Arkansas. I go, oh, I know who that guy is. Yeah, he went to... Uh, he went to uh, Arkansas with Robert Lewis, who was my best friend going through seminary. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll talk. And we get on the phone. He goes, hey, Steve, I'm such and such. And I, know, hey, I said, yeah, yeah, right. And he said, hey, Steve, this is a very unusual phone call I'm making because you're too familiar with what we do. And I said, not really. He said, well, I'm with Campus Crusade. And I said, yeah. He said, we put on marriage conferences around the country. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Doesn't Robert do some stuff with you? He goes, yeah. He said, have you ever been to one of our conferences? And I said, no. You ever seen our material? No. I didn't know a thing about it. He said, well, this is a little unusual because I'm calling you to see if you might be interested in being one of our speakers. And I said, well, maybe. But see, I didn't know enough to know it was a good deal. Um, 
And he said, I'm going to send you some information, and da, da, da. And he says, I'll call you next week. I said, great. I went home, and I was talking to Mary. I said, hey, I got this call from uh, Robert's friend, Dennis Rainey. And she said, oh, yeah, how is Dennis? I said, fine. I said, you know him? And he goes, yeah, my dad discipled him when he was uh, first on campus crusade staff. I said, really? So the next time he called, I said, hey, Mary wanted me to say hi. He goes, Mary? Uh, and he said, man, I'm sorry. Tell me your wife's maiden name. And I said, well, Mary Linda Wilson. He goes, you married Mary Linda? We call her Mary, but from the old days, they called her Mary Linda. And he said, you married Mary Linda, Carl's daughter? And I said, yeah. And suddenly he was really interested in me, not because of me, but because he liked my wife and he liked her family. And here I am in a little place, obscure, nobody, and suddenly God put me in a position where I was speaking in front of a couple thousand people on a weekend and pastoring a little church with 80 people. And see, one of the reasons I was fighting off depression while I was in that little church is that I thought God would never use me. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six more stories to tell you about the providence of God in my life in that chapter. And if you look back at that screen, it says double zero twice. But can I say this to you? Can I say this to you? He knows where you are. He knows what's going on. If you're on the brink of utter despair, and I was, you never know when the providence of God is going to show up. And I'm going to tell you something. When the providence of God shows up, it can look too good to be true. Now, this is interesting. It's been an interesting year for us. We've had some great things happen. It's been one of the more difficult years we've ever had. Not the, not the most difficult, but it's been in the top five. Um, and it's been going on a while. And last week was a hard week for me. I've had two migraines in my whole life. I started to get a third last week. Uh, the way I know I'm getting a migraine is that uh, I lose my vision. It's really kind of an interesting experience. <laughs> but for some reason, it hits me in the optic nerve, and then I know what's coming. Uh, I got up one morning, and I was dealing with Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? <coughs> I got out a legal pad. And I wrote my name in the middle. And then I wrote down eight different areas of my life that I couldn't get my arms around. And I haven't been able to for quite a while. Because, you see, last week I talked about a little bit of transition. I got it going on in eight different areas all at once. It's so much fun. <laughs> Actually, it isn't. But, see, when that's going on, you know what's happening? It's a testing of my faith. Oh, and here's the other thing that's so interesting. The assets I need in those eight areas, they're not there. And last week I talked about God turning off the valves. That's because he's turned off the valves. And you see, there was a heavy fog, and I wasn't sure what to do next. So if I don't know what to do next, I wait, and I say, Lord, 
I got this and this and this, and you know where I am, and something's got to go, but I got a log jam, and unless you make it clear. And John and I talked last week, didn't we, John? Wednesday, last Wednesday night afterwards for quite a while, and uh, it was interesting, because John, I got an email the next afternoon, and those eight areas, and see, part of those deals on the eight areas is that four of them were intertwined, and I wasn't sure what to do first, and it had to be handled so sensitively because it involved publishers and other stuff, and I don't know why I'm telling you this. Maybe it'll encourage you. But I was absolutely in a logjam, and that next afternoon, out of the blue, I got an email. And out of those eight areas, you, you would have said, what do you think will work or work or work? This would have been the very last one. And I'm going to tell you something. In about 24 hours, four out of eight pieces of that log jam just fell into place. You know what that's called? It's called the providence of God. And when that fell into place, the spigots that had been turned off were suddenly turned back on. And when I first heard about it, I thought, this is too good to be true. But then I thought, how many times have I seen this in the past? It's just the providence of God. Christian life is the greatest life in the world. It's the greatest adventure in the world. He knows where you are. He's got you covered. He's the God who accomplishes all things. He'll send from heaven, and he'll save you. It's the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you're there, that you're real, that your promises are true, that we don't have to be in despair because you're there. We might be in a cave, we might burrow it in, and the soldiers are all around us looking to cut off our head. But you're God most high. Help us to live on that truth. The guys that are here tonight that are in the deepest hole of their life, encourage their hearts. And deliver them quickly, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.